Good morning, friends. Good morning. My clock does not agree with that clock. So we're going to go by yeah, mine. That clock is wrong. That clock was wrong yesterday, and it continues to be wrong. <laughs> so we will go by mine. Uh, let me, yeah, let me throw <coughs> a question. Let's start with a question. What brought you here? There are so many options with so many topics of presenters you know and have heard of before. What brought you to this class? Curiosity. Curiosity. That's what gets me to half of my class choices. Yeah. Good answer. Any others? The reading I've done by various authors from various tribes. Okay. About on this subject. Okay. She's curious to get a little more. Kelly? Those of us from Western Canada have been sent here by your elders to see what you have to say. <laughs> Perfect. I was told not to touch the recording, but perhaps I will stop the recording. Thank you, Kelly. I want to know whether this interacts and um, with the, like, the medical world and... Hmm. How it can flow together. Okay. That's a great question, and I hope somebody answers it for you sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not confident we'll get there. Rick? Well, I'm just interested in how um, people have attributed surprises to the Spirit, how they recognize that it's from the Spirit. Good. Very good. Very good. My, my quick answer to that is very slowly. At least that's how I discern things. Uh, most of you in the room are strangers. Oh, one more. I will touch some of those, at least as I have observed them in a very personal way, to give some quick reference points for me. I am from Canada. I'm in the province of Saskatchewan, north of North Dakota. My wife Shannon and I have been married almost 20 years. We have three little girls who keep us busy, nine, seven, and five. My American friends tell me, Jason, Saskatchewan doesn't mean anything to us. Give me a Give me an image. And so I've been told it's the size of Texas with the population of Rhode Island. <laughs> I'm in a city of 200,000 in a church of 150 where I've been for 11 years. And at the age of 18 had a pretty clear call from which I wished to escape but could not that ministry was supposed to be my path. And I, and I blame part of it on you. Glenn. Glenn was my childhood minister on the prairies of Saskatchewan, and I remember taking note of the impact he was having on people I saw and on myself and thinking there might be something there that I should do as well. But that was one of those decisions where you make a decision. I cannot be the only one in the room who made a decision at some point thinking they knew what they were doing and years down the road realized I didn't have a clue what I was doing, and now I'm up to my eyeballs in it, and I have a clearer sense of what I was doing. Uh, here's another such decision. When I was, oh, brought that button. When I was 18 years old, somebody handed me a book. It was titled, In the Grip of Grace. It was by Max. Are we Church of Christ enough that I can just say Max and we're all on the same page? Yeah, yeah. Max's book, In the Grip of Grace, came into my hands, and near the end of the book, there's a chapter called something like On the Fellowship. And he plays with words, as Max does, plays with words of a ship with all of the different segments of the Christian church on it, seated in different places, having different discussions. But in that chapter, he has a paragraph where he goes on to explain his journey to say, I learned about grace from so-and-so. I learned about prayer from so-and-so. I learned about the kingdom from so-and-so. And the so-and-so list was very wide. Yes. And at age 18, I thought, I'm going to do it that way. I'm going to listen to as many voices as I can get my ears to. I'm going to follow as many leads of thought at the same time as I can hold. I think that's a good way to learn. And so I committed that that's how I would try to live. So on... Tuesday, on the first day of the lectures, when I showed up and Brian Zond was leading his school of prayer, 
something in me resonated when he talked about his vision of the church as a menorah and the seven branches of the church. And so he, he broke it down to have a branch for the Catholic and sort of a flow of history. The Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Anglicans, the Protestants, the Anabaptists, the Evangelicals, and then the Charismatics on the end. And he said, I've lived long enough that I feel like I don't belong to any one branch, but I'm at home in all of them. And I'm 20 years younger, so I'm at a point where I don't know if I feel at home among any of them, but I'm trying to hear them all. And so lots of what I'm sharing today would come from that type of a journey. So when you read your title in your program and it talks about a cessationist walking into a school of supernatural ministry, you might be piqued with curiosity. Uh, what is a school of supernatural ministry? It's basically a Bible college on Holy Spirit steroids. <laughs> and so I had been to a Church of Christ Bible College and done my degree there. And I had been to a pretty standard evangelical seminary and I had done my master's there. And I had been through the Holy Land with an Orthodox professor and I had been through a leadership course with main center of the bullseye evangelicals and I have been listening to all these branches as best as I know how. But this was sort of my first major endeavor into the seventh branch to say, there's something here that I don't know. I've got my ears as open as I know how to. And that's the fact that my wife and I even showed up on that door, I suppose, is an attesting to the spirit of surprises. So I have a confession about Pepperdine that one of the things that draws me here year after year is just the fact that this seems like a community of learners. When I'm in this place, I get a sense, boy, people want to explore, want to stretch, want to learn. They're writing down book references, the most obscure ones, the better. And that, that's, I love that because I, I feel like a learner. And when I come into a place like this, then the, the learner in me turns into the teacher in me, and I wish to come and teach and give you something that makes you think, oh, never heard that before. That makes a teacher's day. But I've sort of determined weeks ago that that wasn't the approach to be had this time, that I want to try something different that I would typically shy away from. There's a verse in Revelation, quite popular among my charismatic friends. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. We've come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them day and night before God, has been hurled down. They, the people of God, us, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. It's a triumph scene. It's a reminder that Christians, we don't, uh, we don't live in search of God's mercies. We live in view of God's mercies, right? We live from a place of victory, not striving for a victory that hasn't already been won. And so Revelation 12 gives us that picture, and it tells us that there are at least two factors that are key in us living out of a place of victory. One of them is, it's what Jesus has achieved. We've overcome by the blood of the Lamb. But the, and we all know that one. But the second one is interesting to me, that they overcome by the power of their testimony. That the blood of Jesus is how the, the life of Christ flows from him into us. But the power of the testimony is how grace flows when it gets poured into my life, and now it gets poured into your life and from your life into my life. And so there's a work that Jesus pours into us, but there's a work that we can pour into each other. And I suppose, moved by that, I want to come more as a testimony giver than a teacher today. Mark Love said a couple nights ago in a room just like this, he was sitting on a stool with Richard Beck, and they were talking about ways someone posed a question and said, how can we increase openness to the Spirit? And Mark Love's voice said, I think one of the things that I've tried to do is I will listen to people's stories for as long and as openly as I possibly can. Maybe I wouldn't have done it earlier in life, but I need to do it now. And so I suppose I'm hoping you might grant me that kind of a grace, and I'll share as much as I can share with you. Let's start with a prayer. Brian Zahn shared this one on Tuesday at his workshop. Read this one with me, but not just as a reading. As a prayer, we're positioning ourselves. Father God, creator of heaven and earth, 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel, God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have mercy and hear our prayer. And if you'd go a step farther with me, repeat this one after me. Father, we seek you today. Father, we seek you today. We love you today. We trust you today. And we entrust ourselves to you today. Give us exactly what we need. It is good to be your sons and daughters. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a quote that I can't find who originally said it. Because a lot of people have said it. And it goes like this. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man's been trying to repay the favor ever since. (laughs) That humanity has spent great effort trying to sketch a God that looks a lot like me. And I sketch one that looks like me. And you sketch one that looks like you. And then we wonder why they don't quite look the same. And so the God that I've worked very faithfully for most of 40 years trying to sketch... He's just like me in these ways. He is totally rational. He never does anything that's surprising. He is logical like a calculator. And if you just figure out the formula, you'll always know exactly where he's going. I spent most of 40 years determining surely God's like that. But it started to break down. It started to break down. First, I noticed it in about 2004. My wife and I were serving as English teachers in China at the time. We would come home every summer to catch up with friends and relatives. And I was visiting with a fellow who was about 15 years older than me and a bit of a spiritual mentor, very wise. He's one of those guys who listens to the words you say and then listens to all the things you didn't say. And as I shared with him just whatever was brewing in my mind and heart at the time, He said this sentence to me. He said it with a glow, like a little, like that expression that says, I know something you don't know. And over coffee, he smiled and said, ah, you're not a cessationist, are you? I said, if you define the word, I'll tell you if I am or not. Because I didn't have a sniff what he was talking about. And I hadn't used that word in our discussion. So here's a note. I had been through a full Bible college program, got my degree. I'd been through a full seminary program, got my degree. Somehow, I never heard the word cessationist. Some of you are thinking, I haven't either. Please help me. Cessationist, it's, the root is the word cease. Something has stopped. And so it's a mindset in theology that says that a bunch of things that happened in the early church, they're not happening anymore. Typically revolves around the gifts of the Spirit, sometimes very specific gifts of the Spirit. When did they cease? With the last apostle, when the Bible was formed, when the church was established. Put your dot on the timeline. But the point is, my friend looked at me and said, I don't think you're one of them, are you? (laughs) To which I said, I thought I was. I was having a little identity crisis in whatever I had said to him. He was concluding, if you are a cessationist, you're the worst one. (laughs) Because things were starting to come apart in my mind. And it's not because I had any experiences. I didn't bring anything to him and say, I've had this crazy experience. I can't reconcile it with my theology. I think I need to change my theology. I had no crazy experiences. I'm still tick, 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 tick. You can understand God if you get it right in your head. So nothing has moved, but there are a few things starting to cause tension inside. One of them is I'm looking back to the age of 17 when I preached my first sermon. I'm flipping through my file folder realizing there's a theme here. Almost every sermon I ever preach has this word in it, more. But I'm preaching it as a young man without a period on the end. I'm putting a question mark on the end because there's a restlessness in me that says there's got to be. And so I'm using my sermons as question-asking platforms. I had also been ruined because when I was in China, someone handed me a book. It was a memoir, a biography, and said, read this book. It's called The Heavenly Man. I'm reading this about Chinese pastor brother Yun, and as I'm flipping through it, I'm thinking, I'm saying to my wife pretty near every page, this is like the book of Acts. 
but it's happening in the 1900s in a country that I'm now trekking around, and I don't know what to do with that. And then someone else hands me another book and says, here, read this one. This is an American guy. His name's Jack Deere, and he's been surprised by the power of the spirit. Completely different work, ultra-academic, tick, 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 and a guy telling how his tick, tick, tick got recalibrated. And every page I'm saying to my wife, he's asking all the questions I've ever had, and going through them. And these books were starting to undo things. So part of it was that this restlessness was growing, and part of the problem was also that there was something brewing inside of me that scripture wasn't even a peaceful place anymore. Scripture was messing with me. And I started to realize the things that are in this book are not the things that are in my life. What am I supposed to do with that? I started to form sentences in my head, things like this. Any movement founded upon a resurrection will, by its very nature, refuse participation to the ones who insist on understanding everything. I searched the Beatitudes, but I never found one that said, blessed are the murderers of mystery, for theirs is the kingdom. Or said another way, any movement that is founded upon a resurrection will know that it has gone awry when it becomes uneasy with the word supernatural. Amen. And a squirm went through me. And I was forced to ask, Jason, if Christianity, as you know it, involves no power beyond what you can create or control, dot, 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 I didn't have an answer for the question, so I just tucked it away for five years and went on with my life, pretending I didn't think that. So I get to January 2010. I'm now back in Canada. I'm in the pastor role, the minister role that I've sort of longed for. This is where I imagine myself being. I'm still in that job 11 years later. But in 2010, I was only into it a few years, and something was starting to happen. I didn't know. But it was happening because when things happen under the surface, when you're living on the surface, you don't know it until they pop through. So I'm at a conference in Western Canada, a large evangelical gathering with a touch of charismatic flair on it. I'm in a room of 2,000 people. The lights are dim, the music's loud, and a song comes on by Robin Mark. Do you know that name? <coughs> sort of the Irish Celtic worship leader. And he's singing a song called Revival which is very vivid. It shows a town, and it describes people in the town and imagining what would happen if God got a hold on those lives. And it's a good tune, and the fiddle's going, and I'm just in the dark, happy to be lost in a crowd of strangers for a weekend. And I'm singing this song, and it gets to the part that joins the verse to the chorus. I can hear that thunder in the distance, like a train on the edge of the town. I can feel the brooding of your spirit. Lay your burden down. And if you'd have interviewed me 30 seconds earlier, Jason, how's the state of your soul today? I'd have said, fine, thanks for asking, friend. But when the line, lay your burden down, got sung, I couldn't even push the words out of my mouth because it was this almost out-of-body experience that said, oh, you're mighty burdened, friend. And I knew that something inside wasn't as good as I thought it was, but I couldn't put a name on it. God had pointed it out and then lovingly backed off as if to say, just feel that for a while. <laughs> and a while was 18 months. 18 months of knowing, oh boy, my pieces are coming apart, and I don't know why. There's an awkward, broken stretch. And part of it now was tied to my job. I was far enough into my job as a preacher at this church that's dear to me that I knew uh, I had a phrase playing around in my mind. Jason, you know what you are? You're a decent guy who can give a decent message. <laughs> and I knew on every level of myself, boy, that's not enough. So part of it was a ministry thing, but part of it was a personal thing, and that's where it took a long time to brew. And so at some point, God's gracious gift to me was an idea that said, I'm going to preach through the parables of Jesus. 
And the prodigal parable in Luke 15 was just one on a list. But as I approached it, it became an absolute obsession for a season of my life. It was the fountain from which life was flowing. And you know the story well. I don't need to teach it to you. But the, the touch point, the feeling of I, this has given me a lens through which to see this broken thing that I feel right now. The lens was the older brother. And the realization that in the story, there's one boy we know is lost, but by the end we find out, oh, even the one we thought wasn't lost is lost. And at the really end, and he's the lostest one. (laughs) And it was shocking to me to realize there's a lot of ways of getting lost. You can get lost by rebelliously marching a million miles in the opposite direction, and you can get lost by staying home and never doing anything you think is wrong. How shocking was that? And I realized, like Nathan talking to David, you're the man. And the coat of the older brother just fit me like a glove. Because I had never left home. I had walked the straight and narrow as best as I knew how. I always wanted to do the right thing. I never wanted to get in trouble. I was eager to please living as close as I knew how. And yet, at the end of the story, you find out, boy, the older brother's heart is not in sync with the father with whom he has lived side by side his whole life. And you've got two sons in the story, none of whom feel like a son. The younger one's convinced better life is out there, and the older brother says, being a son feels like being a slave to me. There's a lot of ways of thinking you're home. But if you're missing the sonship experience, something's awry. And I knew that it was. Let's take a quick commercial break. Because I'm having a drink of water. About the time that I was going through all of this, a very clever ad campaign was being waged in Egypt for a cheese called Panda Cheese. Babe, I feel like my son looks a good one. I just, you know why. He's the comforter, he's the counselor, he's the helper. I would stretch it and say it might mean he's the psychotically violent panda. (laughs) Because I love the display in that one of just the the breaking. You want to use your computer? You want to not pay attention to me? I have a move for that. (laughs) Because it felt to me around this time as if the spirit was saying, Jason, you you have ignored me too long. I have a move for that. And so in March 2012, there's a day I'll remember until I'm 150 years old, where I was part of a leadership course, and something was about to unfold, which I had asked for forever, but never actually expected was going to happen. Because if I track it back to my childhood, when I I grew up in a town of a thousand, the lines were very clear where the last house was and the wheat fields were next but you could stretch the boundary. As far as we could ride our bikes, that was town. Well, one of those days riding bikes as kids, one of our friends determined he had something really exciting to share with us. And so he we went out to our little fort in the woods and he pulled out of his backpack excitedly a magazine he'd stolen from his dad's secret stash. And we leafed through that thing which we knew we shouldn't. And I remember having a feeling inside of, This is the most exciting and most terrifying thing I've ever done. And I only tell you that story to say that at that age of a pre-teenaged boy, something got a hook in me. And I didn't know it at the time, but it got in there. And for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, I was conscious of hooks in my heart 
which forever brought about a sense of isolation, a sense of shame, a sense of fear, a sense of guilt, a sense of defeat that never went away. I was still the good kid doing all the right things. I was still the guy winning the awards at Bible college. I was still the one everyone thought was going to go on and do wondrousful things. But boy, inside, there was a game forever brewing. I only tell you that story because that positioned me that when I read my New Testament and viewed the early church and the Holy Spirit among them, and I just, I could not, not see themes of freedom and power and victory. And I had no experience with that, at least not in one way that felt really urgent to me. So I prayed a prayer for 20 years that God would do some sort of a work in my heart to bring about a freedom that I had longed for forever, but sure couldn't bring about by myself. So on a day in March 2012, the Lord, the psychotic panda, brought a bunch of things together in a way I never could have predicted. It stitched together over a week where he gave me a dream that tied into a childhood memory. I'm not a dreamer. Dreams mean nothing to me. But this one stuck out just because I remembered it. A childhood dream, which was almost immediately interpreted by a professor's comment in a class the next day, which was almost immediately fed by a comment that a classmate made, which made me curious enough to pull him aside and say, tell me why you said what you said, which led him to tell a story from his life which led to a day when they gave us a retreat time with Psalm 23 and said, your whole morning will be solitude and silence with Psalm 23. And it was as if the Lord, the shepherd himself, came down and read it with me. Led to a time of prayer. This story is way too long to tell you. Suffice it to say, God knit together six or seven items, all of which would have seemed like nothing by themselves. But it was like one of those movies where you watch seven stories at the same time and then at the end they all converge. And you go, but this one was personalized. It was customized to me. And God used it to address the prayer I'd been praying for 20 years. Brought me to a powerful experience of deliverance. And gave me an image in my head that said, Jason, you've been living on a tilted (coughs) landscape for 20 years. There's a battle going on. Armies are throwing their projectiles at each other. You've been down here the whole time feeling like, boy, even the best I've got doesn't seem to have any impact on the fight. Let's try something different for a while. Try it from up here. I think you'll find it quite amazing. And from that point on, life has felt wildly different. It's as though he said, I want you to learn to live from a place of victory, because that is what the Christian experience is meant to be. Well, you can imagine God had my attention like he'd never had it before. Because when he answers the prayer of your heart that you've prayed for two decades, the deepest prayer you have, well, I actually felt like I had reached my happily ever after. I had nothing else to think about. This is the thing that has obsessed me for 20 years, and now it's resolved. I'm out of prayers, Lord. But you have my attention. And he took it. He took it immediately. He took it in another way that I didn't even expect. A woman who was one of the facilitators pulled up alongside me quickly and said, Jason, do you know anything about spiritual gifts? Because I've observed you with your classmates, and I think there's some things going on. And I laughed and said, not a thing. Not even sure if they're real. I know they're in the Bible, but I'm not confident it has any impact on me. She sort of pushed the conversation, pushed it in an uncomfortable way. I was ready to get away from this woman, actually. Though I knew she was godly and helpful and wise and listening. And so on an island off the west coast of Canada, we, we were told, you're going for a hike. That's your next activity. And so all of us classmates hiked our way up the mountain. And this is a terribly abbreviated version of the story. But as I hiked up through the woods, getting toward the mountaintop, I now had a debate in my mind. And it was, Lord, you've just done this amazing thing which addresses the dark spot in my heart that has plagued me forever. And I'm just ready to swim in that, revel in that. I think that is a resolution that you have done. And I just, I don't want to think about anything else. I just want to be there. And now this nutso woman is talking about (laughs) spiritual gifts to me. And it feels actually like a total almost like a conflict, like she's trying, she's pulling me into confusion to steal from obvious joy. You're obviously here. 
I'm not confident you're there at all. So as I'm hiking the mountain in my head, I'm battling a psycho panda, and I'm praying, is that for me, or am I free to dismiss all of that and just revel in where you so obviously are working? That's my prayer. It's hanging on my consciousness. Is that for me, or can I disregard it? And so as I approach this little knoll, it's got a soily part. It's not all rocky. And I watched classmate after classmate go up over it before me. And I could see that on the ground, sort of on a, a little rise like this that we were going to walk over, that there was a, a sparkle, a glow. There was something up there. It was shiny. And yet every classmate walked over it, walked over it. Nobody's checking. I can't ignore it. There's something on the ground. And I'm going to check it out when I get there. And so I trek up the hill, get down on my knee, and I find it. But it's not sparkly at all. It's dark and it's dirty, and I push my thumb underneath it. It's a coin. And I pull it up. Remember, in my head, the prayer's still dangling. This is very obviously for me. Is this for me, or can I pitch it? And I rub a muddy penny, which had no ability to sparkle, in my thumb. And as I hold it up, my actual thought was, you're about to get screwed with. <laughs> and I rubbed it off and the year on the penny was 1977 that's the year I was born and if you'd have told me a story like that a day earlier I'd have listened to it and nodded and smiled and asked probing questions and then I'd have said wow that's amazing and then I'd have gotten my car and I'd have written you off as a nut job <laughs> as soon as I closed the door. And a day later, I'm holding a penny that I have no, that the cynical, critical side of me, which I've nurtured all my life, has no ability to respond to. I had no ability to create another interpretation. Is this for me? Or can I pitch it? No, this is for you. Pay attention. And what it did for me is it, it, it enlarged my view. It did what Leonard Sweet is actually, not Leonard Sweet, Leonard Allen is trying to do this week with his book Poured Out. He's linking the very personal work of God with the mission of God. He's saying it's never just about private things, it's always about bigger things. And that was a discussion that quickly made me realize, Jason, the Spirit is doing a very personal thing in you, but he wants to pull you into something that's way beyond your person. Because the discussion of spiritual gifts is all about how the church gets built up. is all about God pouring things into us that we need. is all about him providing things so we don't look in the mirror and feel like the best thing we can say is, I guess I'm just a decent guy who can give a decent message. Because the body of Christ does need more than that if we're going to rise up to fullness, housing maturity in Christ and all the fullness of God. Am I right? So this conviction formed, but I'm, I'm convinced that God knew how the dots would connect because that discussion of spiritual gifts, it was just a seed. There was nothing to it, but it was enough that it opened my mind a crack. Because only a week or so later, I met a fellow that I had no reference points for. His name was also Jason. I'm skipping a bit here. And he possessed some sort of a gifting in his spirit that I could not understand. He came onto the island where our class was being held and he led us through a prayer exercise. I thought he was going to teach us how to be better preachers. I was completely off. Because we all were supposed to come in with a scripture, a psalm that meant something to us. And the first woman got up, this precious soft-spirited woman, and she recited the psalm she had chosen, and it was a victory psalm. It was like a, Lord, you're always good. You love me so well, and I love you too, kind of psalm. And as he prompted her in saying it, something happened, and I couldn't understand it. He was praying with her. He was counseling her. They were talking scripture, but he was making her kind of imagine herself into scenarios. It was a combination I'd never seen before. And at some point, he stepped right into her personal space and says, Carrie, do you believe any of what you're saying? Room, awkwardly silent. 
And she says, no. And he prompts her and says, and tell me a real psalm. Pray your own. And now she somehow was in a real place of freedom because she prays a psalm that gets gut-wrenching in about two lines. And it is the total opposite. Lord, you're not hearing any of my prayers. You're not paying any attention. It feels like I'm completely on my own, and I don't know where you've even gone. And he guides her through this, basically giving her a channel through which to process this emotion. The room was pin-drop silent, and I sat there feeling like I'm having a hard time describing what I'm looking at. But there's no denying something is happening in this space. The Lord is dropping on this woman, and something is happening. Well, I was a little, I was fearful enough to step back from the guy, but curious enough that I said, well, I've kind of committed to learning, so here we go. So I asked him if in private he might pray with me. And we went through an exercise, and I confess I had trouble engaging with it. I don't do some of these things well. But in it, he prayed and said, Jason, I see I see, you as, I see you wearing a piece of armor. It's a breastplate. But rather than just being strapped on like a body it would normally be, it's like it's got roots like a tree into you. And it's been there a long time. I think you put it on yourself when you were quite young. In my mind, I'm analyzing all his words. What does it mean? What does it mean? What's he talking about? Is this even real? And I'm thinking he's describing some sort of trauma. Like, he's thinking I'm protecting myself. That's what's going on here. I, don't, I can't come up with something. And nothing happened to me when I was a kid. I don't have any obvious trauma stories. And then he says, maybe it was when you were about 15. And I think, yeah, I got nothing. Thanks anyway. So I take it on thinking, well, add that to the weird experience category. <laughs> but a day or two later, it's just sitting on the back burner of my mind, right? A day or two later, Da, da. And I realized, you know, I was thinking trauma. But 15 was when I got baptized. Just totally the opposite of trauma. <clears throat> Unless when you get baptized, you have no understanding of being a son, and you're pretty sure you signed up to be a slave. Then it can feel like something you better armor up for. Hmm. I wonder what that guy was hearing. All this time this is happening, in a span of two, three years this is happening, and I'm inside thinking, Lord, you must really have a special plan for me because this is amazing stuff. I'm obviously very special. <laughs> Little did I know what was actually happening is he was queuing up my wife to have her own journey, and he was giving me a serious head start because I would have no hope of keeping up with her when she started rolling. Because the same man who prayed with me prayed with her sometime later. My wife had heard a series of stories of people talking about the way God answered their prayers, of people talking about experiences of his love, things that had made all the difference in their lives. And she went to bed one night, unbeknownst to me, in a very, very dark spot. I knew life was hard. We had three little kids. She had a demanding job. So did I. There was not enough to go around. But I didn't know how struggling she was. So I rolled over and went to sleep one night, and she, with the testimonies of the saints rolling through her mind, rolled over the other way and prayed a prayer that she'd tell you was her most desperate prayer. And it went like this. Lord, if you do things like that, then I need something. And she left it there. And the next day, class continues, and now the spouses have joined us. And my wife is watching after a baby, so she's missing out on all of the content. And an older lady tied in with the Salvation Army in Georgia is one of the facilitators. And she walks down the hallway. She knows my wife, not from a hole in the ground. She peeks her head into the room where my wife is and says, Can we visit? And she sits herself down and she says, I think I have a word to give you. My wife invites it, not even knowing what that means. And she says, I think the word oppression is yours. And she goes on to describe in too much detail the struggles 
that my wife was in at the time. And it didn't change any circumstances. Nothing got better that day. But do you think my wife came out thinking, I have been seen and I have been heard? The Lord sent a messenger. I didn't know he did that. This put us into a season where we really felt quite disoriented. Can you imagine? We're having this series of experiences we have no reference points for. And a voice right here at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures counseled me five, six years ago and said, Jason, I think your way forward is going to be this. You're going to need to go where you've never gone before. You're going to need to heed voices you've not heeded before. You're going to need to open yourself up as a learner farther than you've opened yourself up before, and you're going to need to try things you've not tried before. And, and here was the best word of all, and you're going to need to do it without fear. And then he went to John, because that's what Jesus tells us about. Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, it will be even better than it was before when Jesus was here. But what will the Spirit do? Jesus says, I have much more to say to you. I have more to say to you now than you could bear. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. There are truths that are beyond our capacity. At any given point in our life, there are things that if God revealed it to us, we would not be able to absorb it. The Spirit fills a role of walking with us, always knowing timing that's right on, right on the mark, and he reveals things in timely and personalized ways, and he leads well. That's why we can search without fear. <clears throat> Some of us have spent time trusting the enemy's ability to deceive more than we trust the Spirit's ability to lead. So we're fearful. What if it gets me off there? What if he messes me up? What if I get confused? What if I become a heretic? We're trusting the enemy's ability to deceive more than the Spirit's ability to lead. And I don't know that we are served well. God is not honored and we are not empowered by overestimating the enemy's ability to deceive or by underestimating the Spirit's ability to reveal. And so that word that said go without fear launched us into a season where we just determined, you know what, we're going to grab, it. it's like a chain. You feed us a link of chain at a time, Lord, we'll tug on anything. It's like a plot of ground with a hundred wells. You point to one, I'll throw a bucket down and I'll drink from any well. If the water's sour, I'll spit it out and try another one. But it just became this very experimental learning time. And so we found ourselves listening to podcasts, watching DVDs, going to conferences, starting new friendships, reading books, going wherever, just in the hope and trusting, Lord, we've prayed you'll lead us. And now we're taking the shackles off as best as we know how. We'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> and anywhere meant anywhere. Because one time we went to a conference in Toronto that was tied to the church where the Toronto blessing happened. Some of you are shaking your heads like, I know what that is. Some of you are shaking your heads like, oh, no. <laughs> and we sat in this revival meeting that was the nutsiest environment I've ever been in. And I, on day two, was sitting there. We had gone because there were some teachers we really did want to hear. We did value. But as I sat in that room with so many things happening, I could feel a sense of offense in my heart. I'm not even open right now, Lord. I cannot hear anything because my mind is churning. And he, he spoke to me. He spoke to you? I never heard his voice. But when I say he spoke to me, what I mean is a thought came into my head that was so well formed, I knew it was beyond me. And a thought came in that was so well formed, I knew it was beyond me. And it was a question that said, Jason, do you need to understand everything that's happening in this room right now? Rhetorical question. No, Lord, I don't need to understand everything. And it was as if he took me to the end of the Gospel of John and said, you know that time when Peter was obsessed with knowing what was going to happen in John's life? What did Jesus tell him? You follow me. Like, lock in here, buddy. You don't need to worry about his journey. Just track yours. And I determined, okay, good call. I will track. So making a very long story quite short, this whole process had involved a whole lot of openness with my elders. Quite unrelated, a sabbatical idea arose. With caution, but with grace, 
Our elders said, if you want to go to a school that reads supernatural ministry, we'll send you with our blessing, trusting you can sift what's good and spit out what's not. And that's already a couple of years ago. So that takes me to a place where now I would like to say, and as you highlighted, Miss, truths we resist. The Spirit wants to teach us truths we resist. Let me highlight a few for you, and then I think we can make it. If there's time at the end, I would entertain any kind of questions you have. One of the things he really used the experience to address with me was a sense of control. One of the reasons I even signed up for the experience was because I had realized that I was banging on a ceiling. It was a ceiling of my own making, but I could feel it banging on me. And it was a ceiling of learning that said, Jason, do you think there might be types of learning that actually go beyond concepts and ideas that you need to understand? And I was open to the thought that, yeah, I'm sure there are. And it, it, it swirled around on me to make me realize, I think my love of understanding everything is actually starting to sabotage a certain kind of spiritual learning. I need, I need to make a move that would push against that. I don't want to go anti-intellectual, but I need to find a way that engages my heart in different ways. I need to find a way that unnerves me more. There's a certain power just to being afraid and nervous that opens you up to things that you wouldn't get when you've got everything airtight and you're in control. And so my place of control started to be challenged. This is, this, the Christian history is full of these. The contemplatives are challenging control when they tell us to be silent, right? Shut your mouth, because as long as you're talking, you think you control things. So zip it and get alone so that other people's influences aren't controlling you. Solitude and silence, this is a giving up of control. The practicing of Sabbath, it's a giving up of control that says the world keeps going when you don't. In the charismatics, some of my friends emphasizing praying in tongues. Why do they do it? For them, they would say it's a way of getting beyond thoughts and words. We feel bound by our thoughts and our words. What if prayer could be in the realm of groanings that only the Spirit can interpret? So this control thing, regardless of how you address it, the Lord will always be challenging our desire for control. I was given, a picture appeared in my head one time. It was very, very clear along the way. And it was this, it was a man posing in this posture, holding an item in his hand. And I knew the man was me. And I knew in a heartbeat, this was God's way of saying, Jason, this is your favorite posture. This is how you interact with the world. You hold things here. You examine them. It's one of the things that makes you a good teacher. It's one of the things that, that stimulates your mind, is that you can hold things very objectively for a very long time and examine them and examine them and examine them. Then the follow-up thought was, cool, but don't do that with me. If you insist on doing that with anything that matters, i.e., the Lord your God, or your wife, or your children, or any of the things you think are most important, this is going to kill you. And so in that moment, it's as if he said, and in love, I'm going to snap your arm off. <laughs> You're not going to get to function like that anymore. That doesn't work. It's never taken a man to a healthy place. So God's great work of grace in Limiting my sense of control was breaking off my spiritual arm. A second word is the word identity. And honestly, if, if I had structured this differently, I could have spent the whole morning here. You go to a school that has the word supernatural ministry on the sign. You Google a school like that, and you're going to find words. Hot, hot button words. Miracles and healings and spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and revival and worship and signs and wonders. And those are all fascinating topics. Come again. We'll talk about those. I'll tell you, though, what the primary work of the Spirit is. The primary work, in my mind, is in Romans 8, which we heard preached from last night. Those that are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Everything the Spirit does is moving us away from an experience of slavery. 
He doesn't want you to live in a place of fear again. Rather, here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit you received brought about adoption to sonship. It is by Him that we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That is the primary work of the Spirit. The deepest part of God touches the deepest part of us and insists, you're the sons and daughters of the Father. You're the sons and daughters of the Father. You're the sons and daughters of the Father. In Jesus Christ, you are the sons and daughters of the Father. And things in us will say, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. You don't know this. What about this? Yeah, but. Yeah, but. The work of the Spirit is to be more persistent than you. Overcoming all of your objections, breaking down all of your baggage, insisting you are the sons and daughters of the Father. And I will shout it until you stop with the yeah buts. Because you will never get to where you're supposed to be as long as yeah buts are rolling off the tongue of your spirit. And so the Spirit of God testifies, testifies. What does that word mean? It means he has firsthand experience with it. He's not theorizing on something you read in a book. He knows at the center of the universe this is how it is. You're the sons and daughters of the Father. If you are in Jesus Christ and the Spirit is in you, you are the sons and daughters of the Father. Lots of people have found this to be powerfully expressed in a song that this couple wrote, the Helsers. They wrote a song called No Longer Slaves. How many people know this song? It doesn't acapellicize well, so we're not apt to sing it this weekend. But when you get to the chorus, it hangs on one simple line. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. When you watch the video, which is very powerful, the man's voice leads most of the song until it starts building to a bit of a crescendo. And then the voices blend together, and then he kind of pulls back, and her voice takes it to new heights. And I saw an interview with them that said, did you guys mean it to be like that? Where he'd start and she would follow and it would transition almost seamlessly. Like, is that how you meant? Why didn't you just keep singing, Jonathan? And he laughed and said, oh, that part was too high for me. <laughs> That's all. No deep answer, just too high. The truth the Spirit sings is too high for us. That's exactly what Romans 8 is talking about. We have all sorts of things that pull us down to resist the message that we are the sons and daughters of the Father. Somebody needs to take that higher and sing it with a force and a volume that eventually it will crack through all of our resistance. That's one of the truths we resist. You think they're going to be shocking things, but the truths we resist are we're not in control and our identity is we are the sons and daughters of the Father. Those are things that you'd think only a fool would resist. But a fool's leading this class, and a few of them showed up to listen. <laughs> We're all there. So you've got this, this two-flow traffic. Luke 15 tells a story of a, two sons who feel like slaves. And Romans 8 says the spirits at work to make slaves feel like sons. There's a way to get lost, and there's a way to get found. And minus the Spirit's involvement, nobody gets as found as they're supposed to be. Amen. One third word. Identity, we got you. Connection. Connection. And this involves a more personal story again, but let me, let me do it as quickly as I can. Backstory. The family in which I have lived is not the family into which I was born. I was born to a 16-year-old woman who knew she should not have a baby. And so she put me into the adoption system and I landed in a family that I've always been grateful for. They're the ones that took me to church three times a week. They're the ones in whom we found security and safety. So a sister was adopted in and later a sister was born in and there's our little hodgepodge of a family. I always considered that a real gift. I was in, raised in conservative Christian circles, so we paid a lot of attention to pro-life, pro-choice debates. So it wasn't a hard thought in my mind just to think, boy, I'm just, I'm just glad my mom made the choice she made. So I had a grateful heart toward it. 
But somewhere along the way of meeting people and subjecting myself to voices and counselors, people started to say, Jason, you speak often of a, a distance with God, a disconnect. You don't feel his love well. You always think you should feel closer. Do you think there's any links to you being adopted? The first time someone said it, I spit in their face, figuratively speaking. <laughs> because it felt like an affront. It felt like a critique of the, the parents I have. It felt like they were trying to make something out of nothing. But a second person asked, and a third person asked, and I committed to going home and walking through this with someone who was capable of walking me through and realizing, like, nah, I don't think I've got any issues there. I think that's for other angry people. I'm adjusted, not angry. And so life went on, and I stopped thinking about it until sabbatical when my wife and I are students at a school of supernatural ministry. And the experience is very intense, and my wife and I are struggling to know how to walk really, really closely through it because it's, it's breaking things apart in us. And so under this sort of weight that my wife is not feeling as connected to me as she would like to, and I don't know how to sort of feed that, this is a cycle of 20 years of marriage, not a new thing, not a crisis, but a real experience. I got up one morning while we're on sabbatical. I took two kids to their school. I took one kid to her school. I saved some seats at our school, and I came back to pick up my wife. About a 40-minute van ride. And as I dropped off my children and I'm in the van, it is not a special morning. It is any morning. I'm praying and thinking and humming with the radio. And into my thoughts drops a thought that's way clearer than anyone I had. And it says, quite playfully, hey, Jason, you want to know something about that adoption thing? I haven't thought about it in months, months and months. Sure, Lord, because I know it's him. And he proceeds to lay this thought into my head. When you were little, you viewed this as a very good gift. And that's good. You're right. You should be grateful. But here's where you went wrong. Somewhere in your young heart, you made a statement like this. Jason, you're just lucky to be here. So don't ever need anything else from anyone. <coughs> Do you think that sets you up to be as vibrant as you're supposed to be? Put on a shield. Rooted into your guts. Hide yourself. Keep things at arm's length. It was like a decoding of a way that I had operated for most of my life. It was deeply personal, but it sure brought back the Gospel of John, chapter 16, saying, there are things I'd like to tell you, but you're not ready for them yet. But the Spirit is a master of timing. So there's a bunch of things that you need. Some of them are tied to prayers you've prayed forever. He knows the desires of your heart, and he knows everything you need. But only he knows how to time it up well. Where are we at? <laughs> Let me jump to one final story, and we'll dismiss. I knew I had more than I needed. My second daughter is seven years old. Her name is Karis. The word for grace. She came into our room one night. My wife sleeps quite soundly. If the hinges move slightly, I'm awake. The hinges moved slightly. Slight girl came in. Hand reached in blankets. Identify yourself. <laughs> it's Karis. She slips in bed beside me, and I say, what's wrong? And she says, I had a bad dream. I say, what's it about? She has no memory. She's hardly awake, but she's here. And so we snuggle for a few minutes. She probably hoping she can sleep there. Me probably hoping she wouldn't. <laughs> and we resolved five minutes later that I would carry her to her bed and lay her back in and resettle her, and all was well. And on the walk from my room to her room, I said, she said, I don't know why, Dad but I always have better dreams in your room. And I suppose what the spirit of surprises has taught me, if anything, is I have lived my life 
with very poor dreams. I have determined that he doesn't do much. He's not that close. He's not that kind. He's not that strong. He doesn't bring about all sorts of things that we need. And 20 years of just trying to be a sliver open, and a sliver more, maybe just a sliver more. I have found that the Lord is like spray foam insulation. Do you know that stuff? You want to fill a hole? You only got a hole this big, but it's big enough to fit the straw in. And then he just fills it all up. But he's got force on him. He'll take a millimeter and turn it into a foot. So very lovingly, if we respond to him and say, I'll give you a little space, he's very faithful to say, I can work with that. And I'll stretch it in good ways that will bless you, that will bless others. There's more that could be said, but I suppose I'll just wrap up there. I think the Spirit is saying to us, I am better than you think, closer than you think, kinder than you think, stronger than you think. It's better than you think, too. So keep walking with him. Stretch yourself. Open to him as much as you can. He will reward it. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you, Heavenly Father. We love you, Holy Spirit, for persistently telling us that we are sons and daughters of the Father. Let the truth take root in us and let it transform us. We love who you are. And we want as much of you as you have to give. In Jesus' name, amen.